Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Risby and I'm joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards. And today we have the great privilege of interviewing Nadi Simpson. Nadi is a Yawalari storyteller and performer who lives in Sydney. Her original work and practice creatively has been in music. She is a musician, songwriter and performer with vocal duo Stiff Gins. Her foray into writing began in 2014. She participated in the Indigenous Writers Mentorship Program with Writing New South Wales and later won the State Library of Queensland's Black and Write Indigenous Fellowship. Her debut novel is Song of the Crocodile and she joins us now to talk about it. Nadi, congratulations on your beautiful, evocative book. I wanted to ask where you were when you were writing. That's a really great question. Uh, Physically, I was most of the time in my little unit in Petersham. And sometimes I went to a cafe if I felt like I needed a bit of busy life around me to kind of get that into what I was writing. But when I wrote about, of course, it's a fictional town, but it's sort of based on the types of places that I know when I was writing things about the river or the tips of the leaves or things like that, my mind travels and goes to those sort of places around where my father and his family are from, Lightning Ridge and uh, Walgett and Angledool and I daydream a lot. I do that because I can't afford holidays. (laughs) So I was a little bit in the town and a little bit in these sort of in the bush, you know, by rivers and with people in that sense. That's the best thing about fiction. It takes us places that we aren't in in the moment or that we can't get to, particularly in the last year that we have had. Darnmore, this fictional town that you have created, you know, based on your imagination and your life and experiences is such a memorable and yet painful town. You have created a place that could have existed in many different places in Australia over the last 200 years. It's a town that is divided. It is separated and full of lots of secrets. For those listeners who haven't yet read The Song of the Crocodile, can you briefly introduce us to the Billy Mill family, who, of course, we follow in Darnmore? The Billy Mills, they're a family of matriarchs, I think, that they seem to be at first a, a mother, Margaret, and her daughters, and then later on their children and grandchildren. We begin by seeing them as, yes, a unit, but it's sort of almost devoid of fathers and grandfathers, and that's because, not by choice, I think at that time, you know, all the fellas went and worked on the stations and cattle hands or cotton chippers and the work, the nature of work in that place for many of those families and particularly the Billy Mills meant that the men and the women were forced into this separation so that the women kept home alive while the men 
money from the work from the men fed that place, not just money, monetarily, but, you know, kept it sort of, kept it kicking while the women kept it breathing maybe. So Margaret Lightning is sort of the grandmother, her two daughters, Celie and Bess, and then Celie's husband, Tom, Billy Mill, and they have this beautiful, amazing little baby, Millie, who is the bringer of many things. She's born in a storm. And so, you know, you know, this one's going to, there's going to be uh, wind and water that follows her. And for me, you know, I love to be inside units of people and see how they interact and what they spark in other people. And I know a lot of Aboriginal families, we've got one sort of scary auntie who always tells you, speaks of mind, you've got to be careful of her. And But they bring the most joy, you know, a lot of nurturing and a lot of a gentleness that the women all share, despite the fact that it's a really hard place to eke out a living. I love that scene where Celie goes into labour with Millie as that big storm is brewing and it's it's one that really captures the imagination, I think, that concurrence of the elements but also the pain of childbirth and the determination but also the sort of the comradeship of women. And for me that was a real theme of the book, the women supporting one another And to skip forward just a little, Millie benefits as she grows up from the influence of strong women around her. How does that shape the person that she becomes? Millie is born at a time really where, and kids are really fantastic for this. They don't know they can't do anything. And, you know, if somebody tells them, they don't start listening to their adults themselves. And Millie is born at a time of great change for her little community that lives outside of town and her mother definitely and her grandmother who weren't allowed in town. The time of her birth is really a transition in how the town and the settlement are beginning to relate. For a lot of time, people could separate you know, that mob lives out there and we live in here. But the lives have been overlapping for so long that now it becomes almost, you know, the town almost needs the women out on the river's edge to live their lives. And so Millie is born into this world where, of course, why can't I walk down the main street where her grandmother might think, you know, don't say that out loud, don't shush, don't be like that. And there is this joy in her that she's inheriting a whole world. She's not inheriting things that can't be done. And that courage that she sort of has gets her through really difficult times and also inspires other difficult moments when she realises, you know, that it's not a case of being on the outside anymore. It's a case of being trapped on the inside. But I think without those women... And their cautiousness, yes, and their love and their care, she perhaps wouldn't have been able to find a way through difficulties that she will face in her adult life. Millie does face so many difficulties in her life all the way through. And do you get different responses to your characters from different readers depending on their personal background or experience? Yes. I think also the difficulties that i wanted to pose in getting close to a story like this often it's sort of I and I do understand this it's a big ask to get people to keep turning pages when bad stuff happens and I think some people don't have conversations afterwards because reading it was enough and that's fine that is 
all I could ask that people can see it through to the end. But then other people, of course, I mean, and this is, it's in the end, and fiction is like this, I'm learning. It's not about black or white. It's about people, you know. There are non-Indigenous people who've had similar experiences to the Aboriginal characters in the book, whether they've been outsiders or whether they've been ostracised or whether, you know, whatever the case may be, that the sorrow and the beauty that is humanity speaks to everyone in whatever language they talk. That's been a wonderful thing to watch and to be part of and for people to share if they want. I've, I've been very grateful for that. But, you know, and a lot of that hard stuff, we talk about hard stuff a little bit, in, particularly with Millie. We've got a very important dreaming story where we're from out near Lightning Ridge and the story is of a crocodile that eats the creator's wives. These women in this story are the creator's wives and the wives have bad things happen to them. But a lot of the ending of the story, which the women tell to women and maybe men leave out, is that those two wives moved on to become the bosses of the waterways and we are freshwater people. So without those women and the journey they've been on, we don't exist and we don't have our identity and we don't have the beautiful landscape and all that thing. So, you know, this is what we as women are really good at. The real point of the story is that in this creation story, we as Uluroi women can say, yeah, you know, that crocodile and that creator, yeah, yeah. But those ladies, they gave us everything. And I sort of think that Millie's journey, I hope Millie's journey mirrors that in a small way. It's not about all the suffering or all the trauma. It's about being able to wake up every day and then give and receive love and to pave a way through love with all that bad business swirling around. I have to say I so appreciated the observations of the minutiae of family and community life, which reminded me of, you know, I'm from a, a big Indian family of a lot of women and it reminded me of those all-women spaces where the men are off doing something else and work has to be done by the women. Can we talk about each of the women protagonists? Spoken a little bit about Millie. Can we talk about Margaret? And I was wondering if you could talk to us about her job at the hospital, the way that job sort of evolves beyond its description um, and what that tells us about Margaret. Margaret is really there to wash the sheets of the patients at the hospital. She's not allowed in the hospital She and she walks around the back of town to get out the back where she sort of slaves over a boiling hot copper. And the way that the town is set up, if any Aboriginal people who live out at the campgrounds find their way or make their way into hospital, they're put out on the back veranda and they're sort of almost left to themselves. And Margaret, being that caring woman, that she is and also living next to these people, takes it upon herself to go and make sure that they've got, you know, cups of tea and she goes and washes their, take, changes their bedclothes and checks on them and finds ways to sort of manipulate the system of ignorance, of being ignored for these people and, you know, might mention to someone, is there any word about when this patient is due to get out or have we heard anything about their diagnosis? So she's sort of doing what I reckon she would probably do out at the campgrounds, just checking on everyone and making sure they're okay and Margaret is told that she must burn the sheets of all the Aboriginal people, which sort of is a, it's an awful idea, but it puts her in a really hard position. Does she do that? And if she does that, what is she agreeing to? 
the town is sort of filled with these crises in being, in just being in that place. And uh, uh, Margaret, I mean, her last name is Lightning. So she's a powerful lady, but she's also that quiet power. I've been lucky. I've had a lot of older ladies like that in my life who are the ones that everyone revolves around. But if you ever said that to them, they get embarrassed. by talking like they're real, but she is a very special character or lady. Oh, but characters are real. Books can be real. It's funny when you write words on a paper and then they kind of start telling you what to do. You think you're in charge. You think you know where you're going and what you want to do and then you put characters in situations like that and they sort of just, they dictate the story. I've heard people talk about this and I thought, yeah, what are you talking about? You're the one with the pen. But there is something. And maybe when you're working around, in and around, yes, culture, always humanity, but strength, the strength of women and people you are connected to in places that you know, that's how stories can help write themselves, I think. I feel like we have to come back to Millie. Millie is called into the principal's office and told that she's She's now gone further. Any other camp kid gone? Well, the principal sort of says, and that'll be all. Thank you very much. And I think up until that moment, the the freedom and the, I keep saying love and support, all those kind of words, but it really is the confidence and the support that Millie has had in living her young life almost makes it a no-brainer that she would do something very similar to her mother and say, well, I'm coming back tomorrow. That's what I want to do. It's not a disregard. It's a realisation that she's not expected to. That actual day ends up shaping, yes, the story, but her. You know, up until that point, Millie is a leader at school. She's got two other friends who have gone with her up in through high school. They're the oldest campground kids in the school. And she's made it okay for them to be there. And when she's faced, maybe it's about authority too, you know, that something that her mother did is sort of like, yes, I know you're the principal, but I want to do this. And things like that did happen up in the towns in northwest New South Wales. And without those things happening, there wouldn't have been big movements, you know, like we had the freedom rides through Walgett, you know, in the 60s and all those tiny little steps, which are really big steps in lives, really move and create, you know, without people being brave enough to take those little steps, which is a big step, telling your principal, never mind about you, I'm coming back. You sort it out and I'll be back. (laughs) When you're ready, I'll come back is basically what she says. Without those, what does your future look like? How are you going to get educated? But then what kind of school are your kids going to go to? So it's all these sort of huge questions with big repercussions that actually can only be navigated by the teenagers' nonchalance, something like that. Nonchalance is a good word. When the book was a concept, I thought, how can I engage people in the feeling of knockdown after knockdown after knockdown after knockdown after knockdown in terms of a lived inheritance What does it mean to be born into that? What does it mean to have a life of picking yourself off the floor all the time and then having a child into a future like that? I think I I wanted to ask that because I want to understand it because I've seen it, you know, not just blackfellas either. 
which is why I've been talking about strength a lot. We often assume that having men around will help you get through that. But in this story, they're the catalyst for those knockdowns, oftentimes. So then there's no foundational support to get through it. There's sadness in the partnerships, but there's also love that actually happens that we perhaps don't focus on. It's happening in the background. There are love stories between men and women that I wanted to allude to that are happening down the river and next door and everybody. This is just the Billy Mills. When next door, same things are happening. There are lives that are just as important being lived concurrently and simultaneously that involve women and men and children and grandmothers and that's sort of what I wanted to allude to. Nadia, I could listen to you talk all day, I think. You are also a singer and a songwriter and I I wanted to ask what it was like for you moving between different forms of storytelling, moving through different ways of approaching a craft Mm. and telling the story through music or short form or grabs of a sentence, I suppose, versus having what, two, three, four hundred pages to play with. You know, my songs were getting really long and boring and I had to try and do something creatively (laughs) different, which is quite true. And I thought, oh, you know, three-minute song, I was singing and I really love doing that. I do it with my best friend. I love to do it. But the more I wrote, the more I recognised things that you do in a song for me and the way that I write and the things that I want to say, things that you do in a song are critical in writing narrative because actually song to me is about crafting space. The best songs take into consideration silence. We always talk about tempo and rhythm and melody, which is kind of like lyricism with words. And so it became, the more I did it, recognisable that musical techniques can be translated into long-form writing. Maybe it's just the language that I understand that space and silence and timing and I realised, you know, I'd write something and I'd, for me to let it go and think it's okay, it's good enough to stay on the page and to warrant a consideration in the, in the final thing, I would, I would speak it, I would read it because song for me is an embodied thing and I think for me to understand words, they've got to come through somebody. <laughs> Someone's got to tell me the directions. If they write it down, I'm no good. Or when I write something, I need to speak it so I, it has a form in space. It has a sound and that's how I make sense of words. I need to hear them as well as write them. It's sort of giving a dimension for me. For me, the letters and constructing a series of words together was a musical motif or a melody. That was a beautiful description of how you write narrative, Nadi. The Song of the Crocodile is lyrical, even though it is narrative prose. Can I infer that you are going to write us another book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm into it. I've been lucky to be creative most of my life, but I've always thought I'm putting off getting a real job, inverted commas, And every time I have had a job, I've sort of not been able to commit to it. But when I wrote the book, I was working eight hours a day, five days a week. No worries. You know, I could could do that for 40 years. It felt like really hard, rewarding work, just as my mother is, beautiful mother's been a teacher for 40 years. And I look at her and think, I wish I could commit to something, wish I could commit my life in that way to something. And when I wrote 
I realised that was the way that I wanted to do it, with a sprinkling of music in and around. So the short answer is yes. I've got all my new little notebooks. <laughs> That's what I do, collect notebooks, and then I get a couple of good pens and then I make myself sit down. So I've bought all the apparatus. I just need to sit and start. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> I'm just positively delighted. We will hang around and I promise you we will keep podcasting as long as we're able to, just so we can speak to you about these upcoming <laughs> books of yours that are yet to be written, but the ideas are there on the beautiful new notebooks. Nadi, thanks for giving us a really brief but special window into the way you write and your process, but also Song of the Crocodile, this compelling story, and also your car. We appreciate them all very much. And I could show you Redfern um, train station over there, but it's probably enough information for the day. (laughs) Thanks, Nadi. Thank you so much. That was Nadi Simpson, the author of Song of the Crocodile, in which she plays with language so beautifully and tells an incredibly compelling and difficult but also delightful story. If you enjoyed listening to Nadi, then please buy her wonderful book through our partners in this season, Hachette Australia, and also subscribe to Anonymous Was a Woman. If you enjoyed hearing us as well as Nadi, Astrid and I love interviewing some of Australia and the world's most revered authors and Nadi is no exception. If you enjoy Anonymous Was a Woman, please rate and subscribe. That will help other people to find the podcast. Bye for now.